0: From the of brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. I'm making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week, 2016 win projections, first iteration of Fangraphs win projections, is now available at the site. One finds upon examining them, for example, that the Chicago Cubs sit atop the list at 95 wins. How, I asked Dave Cameron, how is it possible for the Cubs to receive the top projection and yet to receive a specific win total that's two wins fewer than last year when they did not have the best record in baseball? The answer won't shock you, but it will likely help to uh, reify uh, some thoughts you already had. What else? Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza received sufficient votes for induction to the Hall of Fame this past week. Cameron and I devote very little of what follows to that specifically. However, I do ask him what Griffey's career arc implies, what it implies, perhaps what it implies about Mike Trout's probability of making the Hall of Fame. Finally, I ask Dave Cameron, what sort of father do you think your colleague Eno Saris is? Here's Cameron's reply.
1: He's likely to be average or a little bit below average.
0: That is Dave Cameron. A conversation with him is what follows. However, first, it is essential, it is essential that I mentioned the sponsor, the sponsor for this edition of Fangraph Studio's draft and the draft app are you familiar with FanDuel or DraftKings, those are daily fantasy sports games. And certainly each has uh, their merits. One of the merits that they lack, however, is the distinction, is this distinction of being the first daily fantasy sports game designed exclusively for mobile devices. That distinction, that honor, belongs to Draft. Here's how you play Draft. After downloading the app and registering, you find an opponent, this could be a friend of yours or an internet stranger who's already Part of the draft universe. You select a sport, conduct a snake draft. You select five players. Those five players, by virtue of their sporting excellence, accrue fantasy points. And whichever you or your opponent has accrued more of those points, uh, you are the winner. He, she, or it is the winner. If you would like to add a layer of hot, spicy intrigue to these proceedings, you're able to, uh, in most states, so far as I know, wager American currency on the outcome of these games. And another thing I ought to add is that uh, this is not merely applicable to baseball, and why would it be? It's winter. Baseball is being played mostly just in the Caribbean at this time of year. But low regard, there are games for professional football, hockey, and basketball. Bernie, with curiosity, you wonder, how do I acquire draft? Well, here, if you have a device with an iOS operating system, go to the App Store. Contrary-wise, if you have an Android phone, go to Google Play or something like Google Play. Download the app. Support Fangraph's audio somehow in the meantime. That's what you're doing. Okay, that is the end of the sponsor's message. Let's get now to the things. What is it? It's Fangraph's audio. who is the feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. I'm um, good, how are you? Good, Winston-Salem?
1: Uh, I am in Winston-Salem, correct. All right, all right. We'll talk about some baseball, huh? Yeah, first I wanted to ask you a question. Okay. Have you uh, bought a Donald Trump hat for your dog yet?
0: No, because uh, because for this reason, and I know what you're getting at, uh, on account of her name is the same name as the country, uh, my dog uh, has been great the entire time she's been alive. Oh, so you're, you're saying
1: America's already great, yeah,
0: America's already great, yeah, Why okay. make her great again, yeah, okay,
1: yeah, plus uh dogs famously do not like wearing hats, that's true, yeah, yeah. when we put the well we when my wife put the Christmas costume on our dog, Liberty, mm-hmm. she thought she was getting punished and became depressed. Your dog thought that, not your wife. Yes, yes. The the wife thought it was hilarious. The dog was like, what did I do wrong?
0: Yeah, I have had to have a, uh, I don't know, uh, we might be painting with broad uh, gender-based brushes here, but I will say that uh, it's possible that my own wife, whom I love, is a very intelligent woman. However, though, um, perhaps one of her weaknesses is that she's had expressed an interest at points in dressing our dog up in, in a costume. And yeah. I had to appeal to the most reasonable side of her. At which point she said, "You know what? You're right, Carson." Oh wow! What's yeah. that like? <laughs> it doesn't happen that often. But <laughs> yeah. she may not say it in those words. I. She just she 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 stops pursuing it. I think.
1: Huh. I will, I I am <laughs> unexpectedly surprised to hear that I need some marital advice from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
1: We also do not have uh, –
0: even though it can get quite cold here, we've resisted the temptation. I don't even – and this might actually be an act of cruelty uh, to purchase like a dog jacket despite the fact that our dog is quite small. Right. Do you take America for long walks? Not long walks, but it is – as you know, in New England, it can, it's sometimes zero degrees.
1: Right, but as long as you stay inside, who cares? Yeah, right. Well, she has to pee. Yeah, but, I mean, she's only – I mean, how long does that take? No, it doesn't take too long.
0: Although, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what – all right, Cameron. I get what you're going. I get where you're going. Yeah. As long as she moves around, she's usually pretty good outside. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, dogs, I think, were generally <laughs> made to live outside. Yeah. yeah. Either, either, the, the Actually, the real threat of winter is not really the the the, the um temperature or the precipitation. It's actually the salt that um, – People put out like the melting agents, Huh. because uh, that can it makes the dogs' paws raw. That's like a legitimate problem, like because they get bleedy
1: paws. Hmm. Well, that's maybe you should get doggy shoes then.
0: Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen dogs wearing shoes on the internet? Uh, I, I have. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> that's actually
1: that's gold. Yeah, As, I think there's uh, <laughs> some corgi videos out there, <laughs> like very <laughs> excited corgis. Those are fun to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a YouTube search that will that will return almost a hundred percent. Watchable videos. Okay. Here's a question for you, Dave Cameron. And this is something we've certainly covered before, but I don't think there's any harm in reminding ourselves of this fact, okay, or reminding ourselves of the answer I assume you're going to give to the question I ask, which is as follows. Oh, as you note know, today in the pages of Fangraphs, the Cubs are projected for roughly 95 wins uh, when we run these steamer projections through uh, some sort of pl- uh, uh, simulator, Yeah. Yeah, base runs, yeah. Okay. Well, we. Oh, sorry. When we yes, when we convert their steamer the steamer projections, to base runs. Yes. Okay. Ninety five wins. What, what we know, and and what and that is the that is the top uh, wind projection among all major league teams. It is, yes. Okay. By oh, a yeah. good amount. <laughs> By a good amount, right? And so what we also know, however, is that the Cubs last year won ninety seven games, which is two more than that, and they did yep. not have the best record. Correct. Okay. So, will you please will you please explain uh, how a team could be considered the best despite the fact that not only does it have fewer wins, or this team is predicted for fewer wins than they had last year, but they have fewer wins than every every team at last year.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the the best way to visualize it, uh, and I think there actually is this actual kind of graphic on the internet uh, somewhere, um, is kind of like a four square box, right? So you've got like upper left corner, upper right corner, lower left, lower right. And so if you kind of imagine the headings as like uh, true talent and then uh, luck or sequencing or whatever you want to call the kind of the effects of context performance, you can, you have one of four options, right? You can have like a good team with uh good luck a good team with bad luck a bad team with good luck or a bad team with bad luck um and those are your four options right so uh if you just kind of look at it and say uh What is my expected and I you know, there's obviously like no luck, so I guess if you want to do six boxes, you can say like the unchanged ones. But or there's uh,
0: there's, they're right at the middle of the the confluence of all those boxes, the four corners as it were. That would be just an
1: average team with absolute luck. Right, right in the right in the middle of the square, right. So but if you think about it like say a good team in Mm -hmm. terms of performance, uh without the effects of sequencing or timing or clutch performance, whatever you want to call it, uh is like a ninety three or 94 or 95-win team, and then you get like six or seven or eight of those kinds of teams who are, you know, equal in value, some of those teams are going to have things break their way and play really well in high-leverage situations, and they're going to push their number higher, and some of them will kind of go the opposite way and push their number a little bit lower. So the it's like say you had six or seven or eight teams all as 95-win teams, they wouldn't all win 95 games. You'd have some win 90 and some win 100, and that would kind of be your kind of collection of good teams in that year and the teams that were both good and also fortunate or, you know, distributed their runs at the right time or distributed their hits at the right time, uh, they would end up with more wins than you'd have expected based on their true talent level. And so that's kind of what you see in observed seasonal data is that, uh, you know, you have some number of teams who are probably not that much better than some of the other teams with different records, but they, in addition to being a good team, got some good luck, and there's going to be teams that exist in that box, and then you're going to have some, you know, bad teams that got bad luck, and so like, you know, maybe a 70 win team played really poorly in clutch situations, so they end up at 64, 65 wins. So when you take the sequencing context uh, part of the box away, and all you're looking at is true talent level or expected kind of context neutral performance, which is what the projections and base runs are doing, uh, then you're left with a smaller spread in talent because you're only looking at kind of performance without the variance of timing involved
0: okay now the last year let's see last year you mentioned some examples uh, just to name a few i think that the perhaps like the cardinals were an example of a good team that had good luck yeah yeah is that right that's and, correct yeah and then maybe the other end of the spectrum the reds it seems like or not yeah. 73 win base run team and they finished nine wins below that yeah, that's not great. No, it's not great. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. Not not that 73 would have been great, really, either. But right. uh, that is really – And to the best of our knowledge, now I've, there are, you know there have been a number of different ways. People are probably familiar with a number of different ways of estimating a team's true talent or wins. What are the? How does base runs, for example, uh, differ? A base runs record differ from um, probably the most famous of them, which is the Pythagorean uh, Pythagorean uh, method of Uh, determining wins and losses, and then there's, I think, Pythagorean Pat, which is a sort of uh – Derivative, yeah. Modification of that. What, what, what yeah. is the
1: sort of difference? So, so Pythagorean record is essentially just looking at runs scored and runs allowed and coming up with an expected record based on if you strip out the timing of when those runs happened. So, you know, we know that a team scored 800 runs and gave up 700. This is their expected record, assuming that they distributed those runs and, you know, er- or everyone distributed them the same way, essentially. Like one team wasn't more efficient at scoring their runs in games that were close, and they you know, had fewer blowouts and uh, kind of, you know... Uh, if everyone had the same run distribution, this is what their record would be. Base runs ignores the actual run scoring and looks at the individual events. So if everyone distributed their singles, doubles, triples, homers, walks, strikeouts, uh, you know all these individual events that are the building blocks of run scoring and assumes that all of those were kind of distributed equally, how many runs would you be expected to score? So it comes up kind of with an expected Pythag and then builds your win-loss record off of that, where Pythag essentially only strips out part of context. Like Pyth- Pythagorean record uh, strips out the effects of when you scored your runs, but doesn't strip out the context of how you scored your runs. Uh, and so I think base runs is a more thorough removal of context. Pythag is kind of halfway to the goal. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I don't find Pythagorean record all that useful, is if you're going to strip out context, you should strip out as much as you can, mm-hmm. and just try to identify the, the kind of core uh, performance of a player. Stripping out half the context doesn't really tell you that much.
0: Right, okay. So you want to, you want to see it, uh, take it all off, is what you're
1: saying. Uh, right, yes, in your words <laughs> like I'm, I'm not in favor of toplessness or bottomlessness it's just all allness allness yeah, all right yeah. well
0: that's uh, that's good so now you you did an interesting thing in this post though uh and I'm not sure I'd seen it done before, but um, I'm also not particularly observant uh, which is to compare the the steamer base runs projections not to uh, every club's 2015 records uh, because as you note, on uh, the one hand, we're comparing something that's in which context has uh, been removed to which it's been added, uh, but you compared it back to the base, uh, the base runs, uh, base run records that teams produced last year, uh, which is uh, I suppose it's uh, what somewhat instructive because uh, as, as far as we know, base runs is it's the closest we can get to sort of uh, measuring a team's true talent, at least what the, the talent of, that the performance suggests, and then that's what those projections are doing right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of an apples-to-apples comparison. I mean, a lot of pe- times what people will do is kind of compare the 2016 projection or the next year projection against the previous year's record, uh, but then you're comparing a context-included performance against a context-neutral performance because no projection system in the world, whether it's Zips or Steamer or whatever, uh, knows how to forecast the distribution of events, uh, at least with any kind of accuracy. Mm-hmm. And so... When you're looking at a context neutral projection, which is all of them, all the projections out there are context neutral, uh, and then you compare it to a context included performance, you're going to get some huge swings that are just based on timing. So a thing like with the Cardinals, right, where they won 11 more games in their base runs from last year, uh, you could look at it and be like, oh, man, this projection system hates the Cardinals. Oh, That's not true. The projection system thinks the Cardinals are basically the same team. It just is ignoring the sequencing effects, and that's because it doesn't know anything about sequencing. And I think we generally assume that sequencing is not a skill that carries over from year to year, so we shouldn't expect the Cardinals to uh dramatically outperform their kind of core performance again. Uh, but when you compare base runs versus base runs, which is what I tried to do in the post, it gives you kind of a more clear idea of where the projections themselves have changed, Versus just where the projections don't expect sequencing to carry over.
0: Right, so on the one hand, uh, the top of this list we see the Chicago Cubs. This is not particularly surprising as we note they were quite good last year and they appear to be, they appear to be quite good this year as well. Perhaps better.
1: Yeah, Better? right. I mean, in terms of true talent, it doesn't, the needle didn't move that much. I think they're like 579 to 585 or something in terms mm-hmm. of expected win percentage. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think some people might take average of that and say, man, they added Hayward and Lackey and Zobrist. Well, yeah, Dexter Fowler was pretty good last year. So the net effect of replacing Dexter Fowler with Jason Hayward is probably not as large as just adding Jason Hayward in a vacuum. Although Jason Hayward in a vacuum would probably not be a very good player. But, uh, that's true. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. You would benefit. I think what do you, well, he needs air. Yeah, right. I mean, I think just having like a stand upright vacuum out there, uh, with Jason Hayward <laughs> like crying for help, like, hey, get me out of here. That's, uh, it would be weird. That would be, uh, that
0: would not be a good use for the Cubs with their investment.
1: No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you're going to spend, uh, $184 million on something, you shouldn't then encapsulate them in an appliance. <laughs> um,
0: the, uh, the second team, however, is, a, is going to, uh, well, I assume we will get somebody's hackles up. Yeah. Uh, and the the Boston Red Sox are projected to to record, at least according at least when we use the Steamer projections for this for this purpose, are projected to record the second best record.
1: Yeah, and I think this will probably generate a lot of ire because last year uh, the projections really liked the Boston Red Sox, and the Red Sox were terrible, and a lot of people throughout the year were, uh, you know. Essentially pulling an I told you so and you should have seen this coming and your projections are stupid and uh, all those things. And now the projections in the face of like a year of abject failure from the Red Sox after projecting them to be very good are like, eh, they're still pretty good. Uh, so I think, uh, one thing that, you know, people don't really like about projection systems is there's not a lot of humility there. They're not like, they're not learning from their mistakes in the sense of like, oh, well, I projected this team to win 95 games they won 80. Therefore I, I'm overrating them and I need to reevaluate my, my basis of beliefs. Uh, projection systems are basically uh, not unchanging. They are tweaked from year to year, but the tweaks are pretty small. And the, the the general belief is that the systems are on the most, for the most part, as accurate as we can make them. We, given the data we have now and kind of the information, they're certainly not perfect. Uh, there's no question about that. And there will be improvements as time goes on, but there's not year over year dramatic Reevaluations of the core fundamentals of what what go into them, um, and I think you know the probably the other more important thing to keep in mind is that the the algorithms don't have any idea which teams these players are on. Right, these are aggregations of individual player projections. Where when it's you know Steamers running the the projection for David Price or Craig Kimbrell, or Henry Ramirez, or whoever, there's not like a flag in there that says, this guy's going to play for the Red Sox, so downgrade its projection by 15%. <laughs> like, it's just looking at the individual players and saying, based on their own individual track record, and what they've done over the past few years, and their age, and their skill sets, what should we expect them to do for next year? And then once you have all these individual projections, you kind of just compile them into a depth chart, and uh, look at the, what that group of individuals would add up to as a team, given certain amounts of playing time. And then you run that total through a, through an algorithm. And so um, the fact that the Red Sox laundry underperformed the last couple of years doesn't really have any impact at all on what steamer, uh, thinks about the individual players on the team. And so, um, I know I'm assuming fans will have a much more pessimistic view of the Red Sox. And I think, you know, it's fair to question, and I'll probably investigate this to some degree of like why the projections really love the Red Sox again. Cause I don't think they're the second best team in baseball. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, whether the numbers come out to be closer to the truth this time than last year.
0: Right. And, uh, now, there's another, another thing that's revealed here. I believe for years, uh, was it for years, the White Sox were notable for for uh, receiving perhaps more modest projections than the, than some would have otherwise
1: believed. Uh, uh, I think they've uh, cr- traditionally overperformed.
0: Right, uh, yeah. and I think that, but their projections for for 2016 are actually relatively optimistic, uh, especially relative to the club they they. Uh, fielded last year.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the team they had last year, it was not very good, and they're kind of the classic uh stars and scrubs, and how scrubs can really drag you down. It's like Chris Sale's great, and uh you know Jose Abreu is fine. I mean, he's a good player. He's not a superstar like he was his first year, but he's a good player. uh And they have some, you know, kind of core pieces like you know, Jose Quintana is very good. There's some, you know, the kind of the the top few pieces on this roster look like a contender, is like the other twenty guys who are just were sort of lousy. And so uh this offseason the White Sox went about on went, went about replacing some of those lousy players with pretty good ones. And so like Todd Frazier and Brett Laurie and Alex Avila. uh they clogged some pretty big holes. And so when you have a Stars and Scrubs roster, you can up upgrade pretty quickly from terrible to mediocre uh by replacing some just, you know, worthless uh roster spots with quality major league players, which is what the White Sox have done this winter. The trick is Trying to you know find enough of these guys, especially when you've allocated a lot of your resources towards the top end of your roster, is like trying to fill all of those holes gets a little tricky. So for the White Sox, they've done a very good job of getting from you know maybe 70 wins to 80 wins or 73 to 79 or whatever you think the number is. Uh, but getting from kind of in the middle of the pack up towards the top of the pack is going to be a more challenging uh, task.
0: It seems as though um, it's the it's this, this way of, of improving. Uh, when you when you replace uh, essentially below average or not even below average, maybe even below replacement level players with average or slightly above average, depending on you know your assessments of of Frazier and Laurie, um, it, this is not as I suppose uh, n- newsworthy a means to <laughs> rebuilding your club or improving it for the for the next year. But I, if you're looking at merely uh, at wins, it uh, can be just as effective. Yeah. It's a good, good strategy.
1: Yes, right. Get good players. Yeah, and also
0: it's that's why there's something rewarding about starting with really bad ones. So when you even, when you even insert an average player into that same slot, look at the, look at the improvement you've just created.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is essentially the, uh, the ideal argument for a Stars and Scrubs roster is if you can collect a few really great players, it, you know, look at all these average players. It's not that hard to find an average player. There's just all these guys out there who are average players, and you just go find a few, and then you'll have a good team. But I think it's just not true. Like, finding average players, especially uh, if you don't have a lot of money left to spend, is actually very difficult. I mean, when you look at, like, you know, Jay Haps getting $12, $13 million a year this winter, and, uh, you know, guys who are generally considered kind of like end-of-roster mediocrities who in past years you could have picked up for a song. You know, like basically every reliever who has a pulse this year is getting a two- or three-year deal. Uh, you know, I think the prices for complementary role-playing talent have gone up a lot. Like, no one thinks Mike Leak is a star. They got $80 million this winter because he's a durable, not terrible pitcher uh who can hit a little bit. And so I think, you know, when you look at, you know, Mike Leake is pretty close to an average major league player. Uh maybe slightly above, but not tremendously above. And you know, he's getting 15-16 million dollars a year on a 5-year deal. Um, the idea that you can just go find five or six or seven average players to replace your replacement level guys is a little bit of a myth.
0: Mike Leake signed for more money than Alex Gordon.
1: Yes, he did. It was one more year so the AAV was lower, but yeah. yes, total guaranteed money uh, 80 versus 72. Yeah, well. The the amount of money spent on pitching this winter versus compared to hitting is, uh, like, you know, I think you look at like U.S. Cespedes and Justin Upton and some of these guys, even Chris Davis who are out there still asking for $100 million and teams are kind of balking and saying, you know, we'll wait for your price to come down. But, you know, Jeff Samarsha gets 90 million and Jordan Zimmerman gets 110 and Quato gets 130. Million. Like, I don't, I can't imagine there's any scenario in the world where I'd rather have uh, you know Johnny Cueto than you know in a Cespedes, given the the various risks and and upsides, and I I wouldn't be shocked if Cespedes ended up signing for less money than Cueto. Why is this happening? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've talked to some people in the game and be like, why is the price of pitching so crazy this winter, especially with now that we have like so many examples of. Uh, you know, the game's moving towards a structural imbalance in favor of pitchers, where the strike zone's getting bigger and shifts are helping. It seems like if the if the game is moving towards uh, prevention, yeah, yeah, run, run prevention, making things easier for pitchers. You shouldn't need to spend as much money on pitchers. You should be able to say, okay, look, we're just going to go find some guys are going to throw at the bottom of the strike zone. We're going to shift all the time, uh, and we're going to turn this like mediocre arm into a you know decent enough hurler. We're going to spend our money on guys who can actually hit. Uh But teams are not doing that, and I don't I don't really understand why.
0: Well, isn't isn't uh isn't pitching like what, like thirty five, thirty seven percent of the game or something like this? Eh, it's probably closer to forty. Forty. All right, yeah. yeah. Well. But but run
1: scoring is 50% of it. Yes. It has its own side. Whole side to itself. Yes, run scoring is the largest part of winning in baseball, and then pitching, and then defense. But Mm -hmm. the guys who hit also play defense. So when you have a guy like Jonas Hespitis, who's a good hitter, or at least an, you know, an above average hitter, and a very good defender, uh, defender yeah
0: although some people might uh, if they remember the playoffs this right. past year they may not. not
1: not a good center fielder necessarily right. but you know a, an amazing arm and an overall value in the outfield mm-hmm. uh you know he adds value playing out there um and he's a good hitter and you know like uh i think if you look at it and say man I think, well, you know, is coming off a seven win season. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, good athleticism, not the body type that you'd expect to collapse in the next few years. It's not a, like, you know, with Chris Davis, I think there are some really big red flags where you could be like, I'm about to sign Ryan Howard 2.0. Like, you know, I think there are reasons for teams to run away from Chris Davis. With Sespetus, I mean, I don't necessarily want to give him $175 million, but for 125 to $150 million versus Johnny Cueto, I, I don't, I just don't understand why the price for good not great pitchers has been significantly higher than the price for good not great hitters. Yeah.
0: Cespedes uh, Cespedes projected by Zips, uh, today, because the Mets, yeah. pro- the Mets, um, the Mets projections came out and because he's still a free agent, Zimborski released Cespedus's projection along with the Mets, uh, for roughly four and a half wins, which would, now this is a projection, uh, you don't expect projections to, uh, to, to deal in hysterics. And uh, you know, or to, as you've just noted, to be to be swayed particularly by uh, recent evidence. But he uh, that four and a half win projection would represent the second highest uh, win
1: total of his career. Yeah, I mean, I do think that was like a based on a pretty high playing time number, right? Wasn't that like almost 700 plate appearances? Well, there's that, and he also has a plus 10 run projection in left field. Um, yeah, so that's manageable. like uh, optimistic on both playing time yeah. and defense probably. But right, I mean I think like you can, you know, Steamer's at three wins for Cespedes, Zips is at four, I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable at all to kind of peg him as a three and a half win guy or something in that range. And I think when you look at like, you know, Jeff Samar's just not a three and a half win pitcher. But, I mean you could like hope that he gives you that next year with a bounce back, but over the, you know, uh, course of his five-year deal, he's likely to be average or a little bit below average, um, given, given pitching. Uh, and you know, I think, like, it's pretty clear that a guy like Cespedes is significantly better than the Leek and Samarjic group, and is at least in the mix of, like, being better than the Quato Zimmerman guys. And, you know, he's sitting out there with teams saying, well, we'll, we'll sign you for a one or two or three-year deal. Uh, he's pretty clearly worth, you know, at least a hundred and $25 dollars
0: okay let me ask you this question it has nothing to do with um, um, what you what we've just been talking about but it concerns the Hall of Fame voting no interest uh, no interest at all on my part in uh, looking at most of it because it's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of yelling that goes on yeah
1: um,
0: and uh, we don't need to we don't need to get involved with that
1: it's unfortunate
0: but, yeah it's unfortunate right and mostly we're just talking we're, mostly we're talking about uh, the best players to have ever played they're all great. They're all good guys. They're all good at baseball. At well, they're not all good guys. They're, not all good. they're probably not all good guys. And in but, fact, as we've discussed before, uh, those qualities which make you a good baseball player may not be precisely the, the qualities which make you a good person or a person likely to succeed. Uh, you know, have a sort of a, consider a happy, uh, happy life. Yeah. Um, but but well, we're we're not we're not judging people in the quality of their lives. We're judging people in the quality of their careers as baseball players. Um, and, there, of course, there is a character. Anyways, that, that's my point is it doesn't matter. The the thing that it, it, it did bring up, though, in which you addressed last week was what Ken Griffey Jr.'s induction in the Hall of Fame, how, what that uh, can tell us right now at this point about Mike Trout and his path to the Hall of Fame. And wh- what's what's Mike Trout out in terms of his career for wins? He's, he's close to four.
1: Thirty-eight
0: and a half. Yeah, that's so much. That's so it's a, much.
1: It's uh, yeah, he's basically two-thirds of the way to kind of the Hall of Fame baseline. He's twenty-four.
0: Right, and it should be the, the the Hall of Fame baseline just generically in terms of career WAR total, but of course, of course, one aspect of that is 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 not merely uh, wins produced over the the entirety of a player's career, but also uh, the quality of his peak. Yeah. And Trout, until this point, has been really all peak. Well, we assume he has. I mean, he's been his four seasons, his four complete seasons are roughly equal to the, you know, like basically the best peaks in Major League history.
1: Yeah, I think August Fagerstrom did a post on this, uh, month or so ago, a couple months ago, where he did this, uh, actually with Trout and Kershaw and looked at, like, the best five-year peaks in baseball history. And I think Trout was already, like, in the top 15 with his four, <laughs> four-year. <laughs> like, he was already up there and he hasn't had that fifth year yet. So, uh, I, yeah, I think, like, what we've seen from Mike Trout is historically unprecedented. Uh, I and mean, then you could go back and find, like, some runs of some players, like, Ted Williams in his prime was amazing, but not at this age. And so, uh, if you give Trout any kind of like reasonable, you know, flattish decline, uh, over the, you know, next five years of his career, it's barring some kind of injury or drug problem or off the field issue, uh, which, you know, happens. Tiger Woods basically went from the greatest golfer of all time to terrible overnight. Uh, so barring something like that, um, I think it's almost impossible to see Mike Trout missing the Hall of Fame just because his his peak is already Hall of Fame worthy and so now all he has to do is just be an average player for 5 years <laughs> yeah
0: right uh, or even or if he's going to be in the league for longer than 5 years he would um I mean, he could be below average, and you'd still have to be like, well, I mean, there were four years in which he was basically a team unto himself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be interesting. Like, you know, Griffey obviously had a much longer peak, and so I think, you know, the Post kind of looked at, like, okay, if you have 12 great years and then, you know, 10 pretty bad ones, you're considered an inner circle Hall of Famer. Uh, and one of the greatest players of all time. You don't, you know, we don't necessarily need Trout to have that kind of peak in order to get it into the hall. So if the question is like, what's the barrier? How many of those kinds of peak seasons that Trout's peaks are better than Griffey's peaks? How many of these years does he need to have followed by just hanging around at replacement level for a little while to put up some counting stats and get people to think he played long enough to vote for him? And I think, you know, kind of running the numbers against Kirby Puckett, it's like, yeah, he just needs to have like, uh, what I think I said in the post to match Kirby Puckett's career numbers. He needs to have six more seasons like Cameron Mabin's
0: 2015. <laughs> so, um, let's see, Mike Trout. Good job, Mike Trout.
1: Yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah. I, don't know I almost that. wrote a follow up post that, uh, was based off Clayton Kershaw and kind of the same principle because Kershaw's already at 47 or 50 wins, depending on whether you use FIP or runs allowed. Yeah. And he's 26. So it's like Kershaw's not quite at Trout level, but he's not that far behind. And, uh, you know, I think with maybe one or one and a half more good seasons, he'll basically be kind of our modern-day Sandy Koufax. Uh, and Koufax got in with, what, 2,300 innings pitched based on a four-year run that was insane. Uh Kershaw's four-year run, not quite at Koufax's level, so he'll have to have a little bit more uh, longevity, but he's... Not that far away from basically just having the argument of like, well, you put Kovacs in, and I'm as good. Yeah, what, yeah. So was it, Kovacs it was four years, but and then yeah, the, what? Maybe the like the last two... four years of his career were just insane. Okay, right. Yeah. It was like a ten win pitcher for four years in a row.
0: And did he? Is it was that? Was he uh,
1: before that run? Was he? He was good though, I think. Yeah? Not really. Early career, uh, Sandy Kovacs was a pretty mediocre pitcher. He uh something clicked. He went from like. Good stuff, bad command to, oh, now I can throw strikes and strike everybody out. Oh, yeah. In a day and age when no one struck out.
0: Well, looking at it right now, yeah. Now, he did, you now his last, his last six seasons were like around six or above, but you're right. He had, over his last four seasons, he had nine wins at least three times.
1: Yeah. Uh, but then. Ten, over ten twice, I think.
0: Yeah, and then before that, though, uh,
1: yeah, a lots, lot of. Lots of one, ones and twos. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. A
0: lot of, yeah. actually, it seemed like a lot of it had to do with, um Better command, because he had, he had crazy strikeout numbers before. Yes, he just
1: walked everybody. Uh, It would be like if, uh, I don't know, Daniel Cabrera had figured out how to throw strikes or something.
0: Well, that's always why you, that's always the attraction. That's why teams teams like
1: these guys, yeah.
0: Right, because if, if he figures that out, it, there's a lot, there's a higher chance, not, I'm not saying it's a very high chance, but there's a higher chance that this, so you look at 24 year old Sandy Koufax in 1960, right? 26% strikeout rate in 1960, that's like, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, right? That's, must like, that must be like it must be roughly equivalent to like thirty-five, 30, forty, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so you see him, and you say, "Oh man!" But he's walking thirteen percent of the guys he faces. And then he he figured something out the next year, and then two years after that, he really he really he went even beyond. But if you had right, you had that Daniel Cabrera, and you say, "Hey, look at this." Arm. There, there's a, there's a higher chance that Daniel Cabrera is going to learn a bit of command than um, you know Tommy Malone. Is going to add ten miles per hour,
1: right? Yeah, I think that that's the commonly accepted truth. I think in this day and age, I mean, so Tommy Malone's not going to add ten miles an hour, but with the addition of like the cut fastball and uh, you know, like Dallas Keuchel maybe is a good example of this, right? Like he came up as a guy who you'd almost throw into the Tommy Malone. Uh, side of things and was like, yeah, this is a, a guy who throws in the mid to low 80s or mid to high 80s and, uh, you know, has an okay breaking ball, but he's a super low ceiling guy who's probably not going to turn into anything. And all he really does is throw strikes. And then all of a sudden he like, you know, he gets a lot of ground balls and so that's useful, but he's developed over the last couple of years and also cut his walk rate down and increased his strikeout rate. And now, you know, he just won the fly young. So I don't actually know that it's been proven that good stuff, bad command guys develop more regularly than good command, mediocre stuff guys either add another pitch or figure something out uh, and kind of turn into aces. I mean, obviously, like there's Cliff Lee and there's a lot of examples of guys like this, Doug Fister, uh, who weren't prospects and or weren't elite prospects and turned into some of the best pitchers of their time.
0: Right. So it's something. It's not something that's as conspicuous, like as obviously physical. As the as the Cabrera situation, right? You say we here we have a guy who, who could throw hard. We know that throwing hard, you know, all things being it's equal, good, yeah. <laughs> right? Throwing hard is better than not doing it. Right. But then your suggestion is, well, there's something on the what we might consider less the physical or tool-related uh, side of things and more on the skill. It's essentially a skill, right? You're, at that point, you're you're. I mean, it requires a, uh, it has physical demands, but you are. Learning about pitching, learning how to throw a pitch in a certain way, such that, or you know, or you're sequencing your pitches in such a way that uh, that befuddles opposing hitters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, right it, there is some ability to add velocity. I mean, I don't think there's any question. Like, uh, what Corey Kluber wasn't sitting in the mid 90s as a prospect. No, it would he would
0: receive more attention. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and so
1: I think uh, you know, there's um, a decent amount of guys. Uh, Jose Quintana is another example that comes to mind. Like, this guy's a minor league free agent. Uh, you mm-hmm. know basically a total discard and the kind of guy that no organization cared about and now he's kind of the big leagues and he's one of the best pitchers in baseball and there's just too many examples of guys like that for me to say uh yeah you definitely want stuff with bad command over guys who can throw strikes and show some intelligence and might learn their craft and might learn how to you know paint the corners and add a second pitch and uh, figure out how to set hitters up and um maybe kind of uh Work their way into being an elite pitcher, even though they never throw 97.
0: Okay. L- uh, last thing I'll ask you about before you are uh, free of your obligation. What do we say? Fulfill before you fulfill your obligation. So, we say, yes, right, yeah, yeah, we say that. Okay, good. Yeah. The um, uh, concerns the uh, the contract signed uh, by Kenta Mita. Yeah. Uh, with uh, with the Los Angeles Dodgers, unique. Um, it's turned. The terms are unique.
1: The sense, they they are in the sense of like we don't generally see long term deals with these kinds of incentives. It's actually not that uncommon for a pitcher who has like a bad medical to sign a kind of low base that gives them a lot of incentives. Even the Dodgers did this last year with Brett Anderson, right? Like they right. gave him $10 million, but I think he ended up earning 15 or $16 million because of how many starts he made and how many innings he threw. Sure. Yeah. Um, but you don't usually see these kinds of like, yeah, mm-hmm. if you throw 200 innings, you'll make $15 million on an eight-year deal. Right. So it's an, that's the thing.
0: It's an eight-year – what is it like? It's eight, eight-year with how much guaranteed? Uh, 24
1: million. Okay, so. 20, it's, 25 million, something
0: like so that. So in the, uh, current, uh, you know, price per win
1: environment, that's, that's very modest. Yeah, but I think the only way he earns 25 million is if he blows out his arm and never pitches. So it's basically like a $25 million disaster policy floor. Right. Like that's if he's pitching for the Dodgers, he will make more money than that.
0: Right. And then that's on top of the, what was the post page? 20 program? 20 million, yeah. 20 million. So, so essentially, the Dodgers have committed 40, 45 million. Yeah. To, to have to have Kenton Maida under contract for eight years.
1: Yeah. So they've basically outlaid forty five million dollars as their floor uh for if this just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But more realistically, uh they're gonna be out, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty million dollars if he pitches well.
0: Now, why do you think why do you think that both parties um, regarded the eight year contract as now this is the longest contract, right, since Mike Hampton side in the Rockies.
1: Yeah, I mean I think part of it is the fact that uh what he's um he would you know, like without giving him one of those kind of special international contracts that like uh other players coming over from Japan have had, you know, theoretically when you sign a player, uh you get six years of team control unless you choose to give him less. Uh so you know, if you were gonna say, hey, look, we're gonna sign this guy to a deal, like Hinjin Ryu or something, they signed Hinjin Ryu for six years, even though it was all signing bonus in that case. Um so I think from their perspective they were like, look, we're gonna get the six full years of team control anyway if we don't give you this opt out uh you know, or the the early termination uh thing like you want to cess but it's got to get it after four years. Um so, you know, spreading it out over eight years maybe helps the AAV, helps the Dodgers from a luxury tax standpoint. Uh I think that is one of the issues is where the Dodgers are paying a fifty percent tax on their overage, so um and the the luxury tax number is calculated based on the annual average value. So if they can get that annual average value lower, they're gonna pay a smaller tax as well.
0: Okay. All
1: right. Well they have a lot of pitchers now. They have a lot of broken pitchers,
0: yeah, and they just need a certain amount of them to work out, yeah they're throwing the, a
1: lot of stuff at the wall. I
0: bet those guys want to pitch that's not, think, they don't I want to be hurt,
1: true.
0: yeah, yeah feels good to be healthy and contributing, yeah, I'm sure it does yeah it does. I wouldn't
1: know no yeah. Are
0: you okay right now Are you sick? you're okay no no this. I'm
1: healthy'm I'm healthy, you're I, don't healthy. About, I don't know about contributing though Oh, yeah, confirmed.
0: From here too. The uh, well, you've done it, Dave Cameron. We didn't talk about the Ben Revere, Drew Storen.
1: That's okay. Yeah,
0: Ben Revere is going to be a center fielder for the Nationals, probably. Yes. And uh, Drew Storen will likely be a contributing. Speaking of contributing, likely be a contributing member of the uh, Blue Jays bullpen. He will. Yeah. And won't have to deal with the uh, with Jonathan Papelbon. That's
1: a plus for him.
0: That's that's uh, That's been a fierce misfortune now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: All right. Fair enough. Uh, thank you, Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Well, I stick around momentarily, but in the meantime, uh, I have said thank you to you. You said you're welcome. I'll say this. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sistuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.